Hey, Journey, good to see you guys this morning. My name's Chris. It's always an honor to get to spend this time with you. Uh, we're kicking off a series that we're calling Beauty Will Save the World. And so over the next five weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to walk this road with Jesus into his life, his death, and his resurrection, all of that pointing the way towards Easter and the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus. So you can have that to look forward to uh, over the next five weeks. The, this idea, though, of beauty saving the world and just really beauty in general is an interesting term for us to think about because my guess is if you're anything like me, that when it comes to beauty... The cross is not the first thing that comes into your mind. You're not immediately thinking of the cross and beauty in the same sentence. Because honestly, it's actually pretty backwards to think of a cross as beautiful, which is why it's crazy to think that, that we would take this instrument that was designed for death bringing and torture, and, and now we would have it adorning our homes and our shirts and our, our necks even. Right, like for a first century citizen, to think of the cross would not be to think of something beautiful, but instead to think of something gruesome. Right, they, they would have a different mindset for what the cross might entail. And, and it's interesting, the first time that Jesus ever mentions a cross is in the eighth chapter of the book of Mark. It's the first time he brings it up. And so he's gathering with a group of disciples, having a conversation, and here's what he says. He says, if any of you wants to be my follower... You must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? These are challenging words from Jesus the first time that he mentions the cross. I think they're so challenging that they require us even for a moment to pause and reflect on what that might mean. So as we do that, let me pray for us and we'll dive in this morning. God, we come before you this morning asking that you would make us humble, that you would open up our, our hearts and our lives to what you might have for us. God, would you begin now to help us deconstruct our, our own view of what the cross might mean so that we might see it in the way that you would mean for us to see it, God. That we would actually begin to grasp the beauty of the cross. God, as we often pray, our, our prayer is that we would just be able to set aside the things from our lives that might be distracting us or, or keeping us from encountering you or hearing from you in, in fresh, life-giving ways this morning. And God, as is always my prayer, would you give me your words to speak this morning? Would, would you not let me get in the way of what you have to say to each one of us and to us as a church family, God? And at the end of the day, would this just all be for you and your glory? We thank you for loving us. We thank you for who you are. In your name we pray. Amen. So leading up to Easter, right, the celebration of Jesus' resurrection, there's this season on the church calendar called Lent, right? And so you've probably maybe heard that term. Some of you might have history with that term, depending on where you come from and how you were raised, right? So really the question is, what is Lent? 
right? We, we alluded to it last week. It, it was mentioned, and then the, the Wednesday before that, we had an Ash Wednesday gathering to essentially kick off the season of Lent. But still, the question remains, like, well, what is Lent? And so I'm going to give you the, the, like, Lent for dummies version, okay? Because it's all I could understand. Uh, no, here, here's, here's what Lent is, essentially, right? Lent is the period of time where early Christians spent fasting in preparation, essentially, for Easter Sunday. And so over time, what happened is that that became synonymous with the 40 days that Jesus spent in the wilderness preparing himself for his earthly ministry. So essentially, by partaking in, in Lent, by choosing to give something up, to fast from something, we're partnering with Jesus in preparation for resurrection, in preparation for what's on the other side of that. It's a way in which we can walk with him. So we're starting a little late and maybe defining it, right? But that doesn't mean it's not too bad to start now. So better late than never, as they always say, right? And as we walk this season of Lent with Jesus, we know at the beginning of it that Easter is within view. And so what Lent becomes, it becomes all about removing the clutter from our lives that keep us from seeing what the resurrection has for us. All of Lent is about preparing us for resurrection life. That's the point. And so you might be thinking, okay, Pastor Man, what's, what are you giving up? Right, what do you got going on? So I got, I've got something that I'm gonna, I'm gonna fast. Right, often we use that language, what are we giving up for Lent? Right, you, you may have heard that, which is interesting because in Mark 8, Jesus talks just about that, giving up your life. Right, and so what am I giving up? You ready? Mine's super spiritual. I'll just tell you that right now. Like in quotes, super spiritual, and it'll sound ethereal and won't even make sense, but I'm gonna share it with you anyway. So that's the kind of guy I am. All right, so for Lent, I am choosing to give up control of my life, okay? So like the first thing I did this morning, I got in the car and just waited to see what happened, <laughs> right? No, I didn't do that. But like it's, it's this idea for me personally, right, as, as I worked through this with God, it, it was this idea that I was trying to take control of my own life. I was trying to figure out what's next in my season of life, what's going to go on. I wanted to control it, mold it, make it. And so uh, I'm saying to God during this season as I prepare for new life at the end of all of this, God, I give up control. And so to practice that essentially, what I'm doing is I'm spending 15 minutes each morning sitting in silence Essentially saying to God, I'm giving you control, which is quite ambitious. I don't sit still for like 12 seconds, let alone 15 minutes. And so it's been a, a, actually a challenging practice for me to, to hand over that to God and give him my time in that way. So that, that's what, what I'm doing. But it kind of was born out of this idea of a strep test. You know, like when you get strep throat and they go, you go to the doctor and you get a test. Anybody had a strep test done before? Right, and what do they do? They take that wooden stick and they, they try and get it inside your throat. That's what they're trying to do. They're trying to get it down inside. Right, like they put the stick in your mouth. I just had a friend, he, he just had strep and so I was thinking about that and this idea of when you get that stick in your mouth and, and, and your first reaction when that stick goes into your throat is to go, Right? Like, that's what happens. Like, you, you do that. You gag at it. And, and it was as if that, that's what we do when, when, we, when we know that God's asking us to release something. Like, we're like, no, not that. Right? We, we gag at that. Don't, don't make me give that up. Don't make me do that. And so we start to get squeamish. 
right, about releasing or fasting or giving up those things that we hold on to. And for me, it was the control thing. It was the, the moment that I started to say to God, God, anything but that. Let me have some control. How about if I do something else that I knew that it had to be that? And so we have those things. If you have something in your own heart and life that maybe you get a little bit squeamish when God says that, when maybe you say anything but that, that's the thing you should give up. Right, that's it, right? Jesus says, if you give up your life, right, he's asking for a lot, really, which just to, to play it straight is quite different than if we give up dark chocolate or coffee or sleeping in, right? Like, I'm not saying that those are all bad just because I did the super spiritual one, right? I'm saying that there's the reality that those are certainly connected to issues of your own heart, your own identity. They're things that take the place of God in your life. That's very likely that those are those things. And so you should say, okay, God, I, I will do that. I will release that. I will fast from that. I'll give that up so that you might then Take that spot in my life that you're intended to be in, that you might be my everything, if you will. Right, like if, if you're struggling with this addiction to TV, right, and it's taking over your life, then don't give up eating carbs, right? <laughs> like keep eating carbs and stop watching TV, right? And then in place of TV, maybe, maybe spend a few moments with God, that sort of thing. That, that's what the process of Lent looks like. It's about God preparing us for something new, for a resurrection, for new life, that he would take that which is old and make it new, that he would take that which is put to death and give it new life on the other side. And even as a community, a church family, we have to commit to laying down old things in order to make room for God to make new things right, in our community. We even get to do that now. There's this personal aspect to it, and then there's this communal aspect to it. So perhaps Lent for you is the opportunity to give up nothing more than our own efforts to prove ourselves, our own efforts to maintain control of our lives, to release the, the tight grip we have on what we have, right? Because isn't it true that our faith most develops out of the most difficult experiences of our lives, not the easiest. And so when we partner with Jesus in preparation for resurrection, we're welcoming that journey into our lives. Really our prayer, our prayer becomes, right, like God, would you just give us the courage to give up our lives? Would you give us the courage to let go of the things that we're clinging to? And would we await patiently the promise of resurrection that's on the other side, the promise of resurrection that awaits when we are willing to let the old way of our lives die? That's what this journey gets to be about. So let us wade back in then to scripture and see what God has for us in his word. We're gonna go to Mark verse, chapter eight, sorry, verses 31 through 38. And Jesus is gonna be speaking really, to any of, any of us who are ready to give up our lives. That, that's what he's looking to do. So you can turn there, you can grab a notes page if you want. But while you're doing that, let me set the scene for what's going on here in Mark 8, 31. Just before this section we're about to read, there's Peter and, he, and he's hanging out with Jesus and all the disciples, and Jesus wants to ask his disciples, who, who do people say I am, who am I? Right, and Peter's the one who's like, you're the Messiah, 
You're, you're the chosen one. You're the one who's going to lead the Israelites to new life, the promised reign. You're the one, the chosen one, the anointed one. He's right. And Jesus is pretty pumped that he knows the answer, and now his disciples know the answer. But perhaps Peter and the other disciples, the other followers of Jesus, they still think that this kingdom that Jesus always speaks about It's going to come by way of force, by rule, by defeating the powers that be. And so Jesus sets out to clarify what it looks like to follow him. What it looks like to be the true Messiah. After Peter's the one who says, this is who you are. So here we are in verse 31. Mark 8, 31. Then Jesus began to tell them that the Son of Man, that's him, must suffer many terrible things and be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed, but three days later, he would rise from the dead. So already, Jesus is flipping this whole Messiah thing around. He's telling them, no, 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 this is how it's gonna happen. In order for me to be Messiah, I'm going to be killed. Like, it's almost like that's all they heard And they overlook that he's like, and in three days I'm going to rise. Or like the the, the big promise at the end, it's almost like they miss it. The other interesting thing that's happening here is Jesus is listing, right, he's listing the leading priests, right, the the religious elders. This is essentially implying that they're going to have to go back to Jerusalem, right, because that's where those people reside. That's where they work. That's where the the Jewish leaders, because all of these people are Jewish who are following Jesus at this time. That's where all the leaders are. And so when he says that he's going to have to go back to Jerusalem to those people, and that's where he's going to die, Peter and the rest of the disciples, they have no way to to form this idea in their mind. Like this, what? You have to do what? So that's why this next thing that Peter does is not so surprising. Verse 32. As he talked openly with his disciples, or Jesus is talking openly, Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. Now, now just imagine the setting. Right? You have to imagine the whole conversation playing out. Right? Don't just, just, just read it. If you've read it before, don't, don't just, you already know what's going to happen. If you've never heard it, great, you're in the best spot you can be in right now. Right? So Jesus is hanging out with all his disciples. They, they're like, yeah, you're the Messiah. Everybody's pumped up. Then Jesus says, guess what the Messiah is going to do? Go back to Jerusalem and be killed. And Peter's like, I'm going to talk to Jesus, right? And he goes over to Jesus, and he puts his arm around Jesus, and he begins to reprimand him, right? Because of course Peter does. It's Peter, for one. If you know anything about Peter, this is so Peter, right? (laughs) Peter's like, Jesus, you're the Messiah. You're not going to go be killed. You're going to go rule and reign and take over and become the king. And so they're having this little side conversation, Because Peter is thinking, what good is a Messiah who is dead? Right? How is that helpful to have a dead Messiah that doesn't fit into what Peter's thinking? He just says, this is who you are, the chosen one. The one who's going to rescue us. The one who's going to rule and reign. And now you're saying you're going to die? That's no good for us. And so he reprimands him. Like, that's not the way it's supposed to be. Verse 33. Jesus turned around and looked at his disciples. Okay, so you're imagining this again, right? I didn't make it very far, I know. Right? They, here they are, they're hanging out. 
Peter's reprimanding Jesus, and Jesus' first response is not to Peter, but he turns to his disciples because he wants them to hear what Peter's saying because they're thinking the same thing as Peter, and he wants everyone to get in on the message. It's just like Jesus to always make the crowds bigger to hear his message, right? And so he's got Peter here, and then he turns to his disciples, and that's when he reprimands Peter. And here's what he says. Get away from me, Satan. That's not a nice thing to say, just so you know, right? Like, that's the ultimate diss right there. Get away from me, Satan. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. Get away from me, Satan. Which is so interesting that Jesus would choose that, right? Because who is Satan? Satan, the enemy, right? Satan, the teller of lies, the great deceiver. And in this moment, when Peter's reprimanding Jesus for saying he's going to die, Jesus is saying, no, that's a lie straight from the devil. I have to do this. This is why I came. So you have to get away from me. You can't keep telling me these lies that I'm going to be this kind of ruler. That's exactly what Jesus encountered in the wilderness when he was tempted. The temptation to be in charge, to rule, to reign. That it won't have to be a suffering servant. And so of course Jesus says, get away from me, Satan. Get away from me, deceiver. Get away from me, teller of lies. I won't believe that. That's exactly the human point of view, right? So how often do we just have our human point of view? So often I think it's actually the American point of view and we think the only way is the way of power, the way of prestige, the way of politics. That's gonna get the end that we need. And Jesus is saying, to them who also thought that was the way that the kingdom would come. It's not like that. It's backwards. It's different. You're not seeing it from God's point of view, which begs the question, what is God's point of view? We should always be asking, what is God's point of view? Verse 34, then here's what happens next. Then, calling the crowd to join his disciples. How crazy is this? Started out with Jesus and Peter. Then Jesus invites the disciples in. And now Jesus is like, okay, crowd, gather around because you're all going to need to hear this because you're all thinking the same thing. We've got something here that everyone needs to hear. And he gathers the crowd. And here's what he says. If any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross, and follow me. Jesus calls everybody together and says that. And that's when we hear cross for the first time. In, in this audience that he was speaking to, this crowd, they would have known what a cross meant. And it was not because they had seen it around their brother's neck. It is not because it was on their mother's kitchen. It was because they had seen their friends hang on them and die. Like Jesus is ultimately serious about that he's going to have to be killed. And so when he says take up your cross, that, that pit in their stomach is right there. The cross? You mean that torture device? You mean the one that the Romans use to kill people? I have to take up one of those? 
And so often, we have this misconception about carrying our cross. We think that carrying our cross will will have to be like this life that that we rush through and we do as much as we can, as fast as we can, and that's just the load we've got to bear and we've got to try and do it all. Or sometimes we just think, right, like carrying a cross is we're, we're at our family's house for Christmas and we have to endure this conversation from that certain relative, right? And like, their family, that's just my cross to carry, right? We think that's it. Some of us even think that, that like in order to carry our cross, that means the ultimate level of obedience is to live this painful existence for the entirety of our lives. As if that's the only thing that Jesus requires from us, is that we would be burdened, that we would be heavy. Right? This is the same Jesus who says, take up your cross, who says, you know why I've come? I've come so that you would have life and have it to the full. It's the same Jesus who says, come to me, all you who are weary, and I'll give you rest. My, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. So certainly he doesn't mean that carrying our cross means that we won't be able to endure anything in this life and that it all sucks, right? Like that can't be what he means. But he's saying it will cost you something. You will be uncomfortable at times because following me is not easy. It is not easy because if any of you wants to follow me, you've got to turn from your selfish ways and then take up your cross. The other thing that's interesting when Jesus says to take up your cross is that now he's taken this audience that's probably strictly Jewish and he's made it something bigger than that because the Jewish leaders, they couldn't crucify anyone. Like if you got in trouble with the Jewish leaders, they couldn't crucify you. Only Rome had that power. And so essentially he's saying, take up your cross, you know, like everyone. It could be anyone. This message could be for anyone. Again, Jesus is inviting more and more people in. And then this becomes all about followership, right? If you want to follow me, discipleship is the other word that you could hear, right? Discipleship. And he's so adamant about this, I believe, is because when we get Messiahship wrong, when we get why the Messiah came, when we get that wrong, then I'll get a wrong view of discipleship. If we think the Messiah is about power and rule and reign, then we're going to think that discipleship is about power and rule and reign. If we get the Messiah wrong, we get the disciple wrong. So that's why Jesus is making it clear, this is what the Messiah is like. This is what I'm like. And it would seem to me that you don't carry a cross if there isn't going to be a death of some sort. But there would be no reason to carry a cross if there was going to be no death. And I don't think he's implying that someone else will hang from that metaphorical cross that is your own. Right, he's not saying you're carrying this so someone else will die on it. He's saying carry your cross. And he's saying that all who desire to follow him will die. It's the only way. It's the only way. It's the way of co-suffering love. Right? That's pretty ironic. And even more ironically, this ends up being the beauty that will save the world the beauty of the Messiah on the cross saying this is the way, this is the way. 
So after Jesus says this to his disciples, that the way to follow him is to turn from your selfish ways and take up your cross, he gives us a picture of what following, what discipleship looks like. Mark 8, 35, Jesus continues after he says that. He says, if you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my message in these adulterous and sinful days, the Son of Man will be ashamed of that person when he returns in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Jesus says, if you want to find your life, then you've got to lose it. Again, that's so backwards. Right, and he's not speaking solely about your physical life, right? Like the word life here, this embodies your personhood, your identity, all of who you are. This is your being. He says everything that you're holding on to that you think is right about yourself, that's what you've got to give up. And if you keep following that urge and you run that out, at the cost of your soul, that's not worth it. That's not worth it. And I can't help but think how we've lulled ourselves into believing an Americanized version of the gospel. One in which we believe the world is ours for the taking. Where we believe we will make our own way, dang it. Right? One, one where profit will give our life meaning. And the only way is the way in which we win. We've made the gospel into something where our goal is to always be better or more powerful or richer than we've ever been in Jesus' name. That becomes our good news because we've made it so. Like this is us. This is the American church eschewing the beauty of the cross, the beauty of the way of Jesus for the ugly ways of, of empire and triumph. Jesus calls us, any of us who wish to be his followers, to let this die, to let that type of living die, to give it up. Not because his cross is a burdensome cross, but because his cross means the mortality of this fleshly view, this human point of view, that's where it goes to die. We let that be the end because where there is no death of ourselves, there is no resurrection and newness of life. There is no resurrection to a life in which we are fully human, fully ourselves as God intended, fully the person he made us to be, fully identified in him. Like That's what's beautiful. That's the way of Jesus. That's the resurrection life. And you know what? Jesus went first to show us the way. Jesus went first. You want to know what it looks like to take up your cross? Jesus says, let me show you. Follow this example. I will carry my cross and I will die there so that you will know how much I love you, what my love looks like, so that you might have a way to have a relationship with me. He says, I'll go first, but will you follow? Will you follow? One can't follow 
Jesus accept on the way of self-denial and co-suffering love that's found on the cross. That's it. That's the way. You and I have the path of this suffering Savior to follow. One who says, give up your life. This life that is your personhood, your identity, your being, this life that you're clinging to. Give that up. I've heard it described that God is, is there in precisely God and that he can do what humanity cannot do. God can allow himself to be rejected, to be made low and small without being driven to some inferiority complex, right? Whoever understands the suffering of the Son of Man, whoever understands the suffering of Jesus understands God. Because it's there in that suffering and not in the heavenly splendor that one sees the heart of God. This is what God is like. You want to know what God is like? Well, look at Jesus. He says, this is what I'm like. I'm a co-suffering Savior. And so do we understand that? I believe we're often just Christian enough to confess that Jesus saves the whole world through his cross, but we don't want to imitate it. We're just Christian enough to say, well, of course, Jesus saves the world through his cross, but we don't want to imitate it. And so instead, we choose the ugly forms of intimidation or threats or power or coercion over the beauty of the cross. And the truth is that our critics, they see this, even if we're unaware, they see how ugly that really is to say that's what we're about and then live this way, but we're unaware of how ugly it is. Because really the fact of the matter is there's nothing logical or practical about the cross. There just isn't. That's the way to start a movement, a kingdom, a revolution of followers by way of the cross, by willingly being killed on a cross. That's what starts this whole thing. Completely illogical and impractical. And it's so true that it's actually what makes us squeamish. Like we, we, we gag at this idea of the cross, right? Can we really surrender to this cross? Can we really surrender our finances, our children's future, our job situation, our marriage or lack thereof, right? Our addictions, our idea of success. Can we really surrender our lust for power and control? Can we really do that? Because Jesus, he had to literally take up his cross. The cross he actually died on, he actually carried that cross, even though, even though his gut did not want to do it. Like it literally made Jesus gag to think that this was the way. So much so that he went by himself into the garden and he was sweating drops of blood, pleading, God, would there be any other way but this? Would there be any other way than me giving up my life in this way? And Jesus knew 
And I swear, somewhere deep inside, every single one of us, you and I know that the cross is the only way. This is the only way it could have happened. This is the only way that we could have known who God really is and what God is really all about. The love of a Savior who's willing to suffer. There is nothing that he cannot relate to in our lives. There is nothing that he has not done by way of the cross. Because where there is death, there's resurrection. But where there is no death, we will experience no resurrection. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask us to do something that we maybe don't ever do around here. Um, so what I'm gonna ask you to do here in a second is I'm gonna ask you to, to kneel, and and you can in just a second I'm gonna explain why, so it's clear. Right, where you could just turn around in, in your seat and you could kneel there. And then the idea would be this, that the posture of our bodies would represent the posture of our hearts. And we would just kneel before God and surrender, whatever that might be. So you could go ahead, if you're physically able, if you're not, that's totally fine. You can stay in your seat and you could do that. But let's, let's kneel together and let's let the, the posture of our bodies represent the posture of our hearts. And in these few moments, as we kneel before God, maybe there's something you need to surrender. You can do that. Maybe, maybe there's something in which you could pray on behalf of those the world over, Syrian Christians who are being kidnapped and beheaded, Children without homes or meals. Give that to God and say, God, by your co-suffering love, would you heal this world? Take a few moments with him and I'll close this in a second. God, as we kneel before you now, again, our prayer is that the posture of our bodies would represent the posture of our hearts, that we would be humble before you, that we would surrender every piece of our lives to you. God, would you speak into each one of our lives directly and those things that when we get squeamish or, or we gag at them or we say anything but that, would you give us the courage to release that to you?
And would you also give us the hope to believe that on the other side of that death, there is always a resurrection. On the other side of sacrificing our old ways of life, as we give those to you, that you offer newness of life on the other side. And we find that, that promise fulfilled in your son who carried his own cross to his own crucifixion and died so that we might have a way to know you, to have a relationship with you, God, but that it didn't end there. That three days later, by your power, he was raised from the dead. God, would we never underestimate the power that also lives within each one of us who believes. God, we acknowledge that we can't do it on our own. We acknowledge that at times carrying our cross is uncomfortable. But God, would we not forget that the cross is a reminder that this life is not our own and that even when it's uncomfortable or hard at times, it's always worth it because we always find new life. We release all of what we're holding on and clinging to, to you, Jesus. We ask that you would give us the courage to follow. We love you. Would all of this be for your glory? In your name we pray, amen.